Back to the podcast once again, Mr. Matthew Rizzling, all the way from far off romantic Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Oh God, this summer has been so long without any any new episodes. <laughs> well, well, uh, we're back up and running. We're recording this in September. This probably won't be dropping until November, though. Um, we're going to talk about some more historic horrors. This is the third time that we're uh, sort of tackling this specific topic. And you picked this list out of many. So why historic horrors? Uh, well, I mean, very similar to the way that I tend to pick your lists is I like to pick lists that don't have too much scene. Right. Um, it had The Witch, which uh, is... Uh, I saw it a long time ago. Not a long time ago. It's not that old. But I saw it when quite it a while like? ago, and I remember liking it. And then I thought, if everything else is the witch caliber, then this should be a pretty good list. <laughs> uh, the other great. one, which maybe this will even bleed into the first review, uh, maybe not. But the movie Gothic, um, it has one of the great cinematic horror covers of all time, right. um, with sort of that play on the on that famous painting, The Nightmare. And when I was a little kid at the video store, I always saw that little imp perched on that woman's chest and it was looking straight at me and it, and it really haunted me and I had a huge appetite for slasher movies ghost movies to some extent but I was really into Friday the 13th and Sleepaway Camp right. um, but that movie always seemed a little too scary for me <laughs> couldn't handle it and you waited all these years <laughs> <laughs> yeah so this was the first time you went in absolutely unprepared for gothic <laughs> yeah, I, I had I had never read up on it. I didn't know anything. I, over the years, I had come to realize that the cover was a play on a famous painting, but that's yeah. all I knew. Right. Well, we'll get into it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I really like these uh, movies that are set in 
well, generally speaking, I find movies that are set in historic times tend to age better. It, uh-huh. like, anytime you make a movie that's really current and really now, it's sort of like doomed to be, oh, that's so 90s, oh, that's so 80s, oh, that's so whatever. But uh, if you pick a period and you, you can reflect it authentically, I think it helps your movie. And uh, if you, that's the real thing is that, that gets me into it, even though some of these are going to be bigger budget than others. Is, do I believe that this is set in period? Do I accept yeah. the atmosphere? And if I do, uh, it goes a long way for me. It almost feels like it's a different genre. It's just a horror movie in a different period, but it feels somehow makes the movie feel bigger to me. So mm-hmm. I'm a well, I fan. definitely think that one and a half, at least one and a half movies on this list will be timeless. Right. Uh, I, I almost one of them will for sure stand the test of time. But there's another one um, which we will talk about much later um, that was a surprise not quite favorite but a surprise uh surprisingly enjoyable surprisingly enjoyable to me um and i think it it will probably age well right some of them not so much but you know well um i don't know what more i want to say about this i guess we can just duck into them um is there anything you want to say before i list off these movies and we uh, jump into the episode no let's get to it okay well the six historic horror films that Matthew Risling and I are going to review this episode. We have Gothic from infamous director Ken Russell. We have an anthology of animated Edgar Allan Poe adaptations called Extraordinary Tales. We have a um, really bizarre psychological horror film called The Falling. We have a telling of what is supposedly the first case of a supernatural entity claiming a life in the American haunting. We have Stonehurst Asylum from the director of one of my favorite horror movies, Session 9. And last but not least, we will discuss The Witch. You're breathing heavy into your mic, dude. (laughs) Say that again? You're breathing pretty heavy in your mic. I'm hearing a lot of... Sorry, I'll keep it away from my face. Stop breathing so much, dude. You're wrecking the podcast. (laughs) I need it to live. (laughs) I read that somewhere. You do need to breathe to live. So, yes. Okay, tell me if I'm... If I'm breathing heavily into the mic, because I don't want this to be your impression that your listeners have of me. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the, sort of the fun thing about the podcast. Nobody really knows it. Well, people that know us know what we look like. But a lot of people have to fill in the blanks. So they don't know that you're like this huge trucker dude with a Klondike beard. <laughs> and that your gut won't fit into any t-shirt, right? But <laughs> they can imagine you're George Clooney, right? <laughs> They don't know that my nose takes up two-thirds of my my face. (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) They don't need to. Uh, I think that that's enough of a tangent. Let's do this. And there, ladies and gentlemen, on the other side of the lake, we have the famous villa Diodati, where Lord Byron, greatest living English poet, resides in exile. He was forced to leave his native land after many scandals. Mad, sad, and dangerous to know, she called him. Tell the truth, Albert. He's the devil. Show them your clothes and hope. Oh. Isn't your theory that lightning can endow a lifeless being with life? To create a ghost story is, is nothing. But to create a ghost, let death be our witness. Our minds will do the best. <clears throat> this is not a game. Gaze into the eyes. Come down, you're the darkest. Yeah. Come 
So, uh, Ken Russell's Gothic from 1986. Wow. It's interesting, during the introduction you were talking about remembering this VHS case. And yeah, it, this little demonic figure is hunched over top of Natasha Richardson. And uh, it's like this succubus creature. It's like sucking her nightmares out or, or smothering her or something. But it always looked scary to me. And I guess unlike you, I wasn't too scared to watch it. So I, I saw this movie <laughs> at a very young age. <laughs> And it was impenetrable. <laughs> so, uh, again, I had no idea who Percy Shelley was. I had no idea who, like, all these historical figures were when, when I watched it originally. So uh, I decided to give it another shake as an adult human being when I randomly bumped into it, used. And, uh, well, here we go. <laughs> Ken Russell oh, here go. is going to tell the story of this night where all of these creative minds get together. Uh, uh, the I can't remember the name of the author who wrote the original vampire book. Oh, uh, I had it written down and then uh, I can't... It's... And of course, Mary and Percy Shelley, uh, they're all hanging out in uh, this big mansion and they're doing a lot of drugs, they're having a lot of sex, and they're having those crazy sort of... Uh, creative outpouring perhaps or is it just an, just is it just madness and uh well that's the question that really I, i'm gonna pose to you as an introduction like is it just madness is there any like meat to this thing <laughs> like <laughs> like it really seems to me like the cast is trying to overact each other because i have there's some good actors and there's julian sands <laughs> yeah this is part one of our julian sands double feature and it seems like everyone's trying to top each other in how big they're playing it and just the craziness of the roles. So, um, it's, it's hard to look away from, but it's also really hard to recommend. So, I guess <laughs> I, I throw the ball to you, Matthew. Is it just madness? Uh, my read on it, which is one of the many reasons I found it disappointing, is I thought the ultimate idea at the end is it's like this terrifying sublime creativity manifest like there's just when you get this much creative energy together and it's unbounded and then everybody has to scream and like you said everybody's uh in a competition about who can yell the loudest or cry the most or or just emote just non-stop emoting <laughs> uh i think julian sands is the one who becomes the most unintentionally hilarious of the group Although uh, Gabriel Byrne certainly has his moments, and um, Timothy Spall, who plays uh, Doctor Polidori, who uh, would go on to write this vampire novel, is like this really crazy, creepy, <laughs> sweaty-looking like fop character. <laughs> and uh, I actually, I, I liked his performance maybe the most of everybody. For sure. I mean, I guess his character gave him more of leeway to be as crazy as he was, 
Whereas I think these other people were supposed to be sort of creative geniuses. We were supposed to sort of respect their art, you know? I think what, what struck me about watching it as an adult is that Ken Russell might have actually gotten shockingly close to authentic in a few ways in that, yeah, maybe all these people did get together and maybe it was a dark and stormy night and maybe they did a bunch of chemicals and they were just idiots. They just acted like insane people, <laughs> like people who are doing a lot of drugs do. I mean, I'm sure they're not the first people who ever thought, you know, I'll be a better writer if I'm chemically enhanced or if I'm, uh, you know, off my ass drunk. But typically the results aren't that great. <laughs> and when the movie tries to imply inspiration, like uh, that lightning is the, the sort of uh, creative energy force of life, it's interesting because it's not even implicitly said in Frankenstein that it's lightning that brings the creature to life. That's all been an invention of Hollywood, but the, the movie keeps nodding at this. You know. Yeah, well, although, if I might, because there, I want to kind of defend this movie a little bit before I further tear into it, <laughs> in that there were some, like, this was the movie he really wanted to make. Uh, he put a lot of effort into certain things, so at the beginning when Shelley is rattling off that bit about lightning striking a tree, uh, that's actually from the first chapter of Frankenstein, mm. so the monster isn't brought to life by lightning, but lightning is heavily featured, and they're quoting from it verbatim, although it was curious to me why they had Percy Shelley quote from the novel as if to say that his wife just was sort of riding his coattails. Like, it was weird that she wasn't quoting from the novel that she would later write. And that happens again and again when Gabriel Burns naked in the storm standing on the roof. He's screaming about how lightning is a creative force of the universe. And yeah. she, they, they flash to her face, yeah, make a note of this, I'll include this in my writing. It kind of takes some of her, uh, <laughs> it takes credit away from Mary Shelley in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's like, damn, women writers have had it too good for too long. When, Just, when are the men going to get their shape? Exactly. When are, when are white males going to get their due? <laughs> but the problem there is... Were also Sorry, just while, just while we're going to the literary stuff, and only because, you know, I got a degree in, in 18th century literature, so this is sort of like my area, but there were some points where it seemed like they were Forrest Gumping uh, their way through every little bit of 18th century culture. Right. So, like, uh, the Fusilli painting, which is, it, it's the main image, and was a terrifically well-recreated image in the movie, uh, there's no reason to think that that was at Byron's house. That was probably in a museum. Um, well, there were a couple of copies, but there's no reason to think he had one of the original. Uh, there's a point where Julian Sands is, after his first freakout, and he's splashing water on his face, and it's from this urn, uh, this tub of goldfish, which is recalling this old poem about ode on a favorite cat drowned in a tub of goldfish. And, like, yeah, that happens sort of, historically adjacent-ish, but you, you don't have to hit every single thing that you know about literature from that period, which is apparently three or four things. Well, worse than that is I don't feel like I learned anything. Like, I didn't feel enriched by watching the movie. It's not that stuff that stuck with me. It was like boobs with eyeballs on them. Or that, like... Oh, 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 <laughs> sorry, I'm going to pause you. Oh. That was one of my notes, which I was really confused about, because I had eye boobs, exclamation point, exclamation point, <laughs> and it wasn't until you just said it now that I remembered it. But that was a terrific image. <laughs> like, what the fuck, right? And there's a scene where Julian Sands encounters this weird, I don't know what you call it, supposedly automated China doll that does a strip tease for him. 
<laughs> is it real? Is it a hallucination? Is it inspiration for his poetry? Or is it just a random nonsensical scene in the middle of this movie that is kind of random and nonsensical? Well, um, that's another one, I think, where they're Forrest Gumping their way through the 18th century, because those, those um, Swiss clockwork dolls were really popular, and, and they had some really creepily surreal automata that, that people were really into. Um, and this is, again, where I'm going to give props to a bad movie, but there were a couple of set pieces that I thought were really good, and that, that was one of them. Yeah, you it like looked that? good. I mean, it was pointless, just like the whole movie, but it looked really good. Like, it, as far as if this had been like three separate art house shorts that you just had experimental music and those few images, they would have been really good. I think. Right. Um, I think that, like I said, we've we've been tough on the acting, but I think everybody was trying to meet the craziness of the script, and that they were being directed to play it over the top and big. In this sort of soup of big performances, Miriam Sear, who plays Claire Claremont, sort of stands out for me. She was the girl with the big bushy brunette hair that looked like she had an 80s eye boobs. perm. And she had the eye boobs, exactly. I should have just gone right to that. <laughs> <laughs> she, in particular, is highly sexualized throughout the movie and spends a lot of the movie running around laughing or screaming and... I honestly don't understand what role she plays in the story or in the movie. Uh, she kind of sticks out, which is weird considering how crazily big people are playing it. Uh, when last you were on the podcast, you were talking about Gabriel Byrne in Miller's Crossing and how he's never really had really great roles to shine. Well, bite your tongue. <laughs> well, he won some awards from this movie. This was well-received back in 1986 in certain... Uh, I mean, he didn't win an Oscar or anything, but like European festivals and stuff. An um, art house hit. I, I think I this think. was like a breakout performance for him. Well, maybe got him noticed. I, I mean, I don't know. I certainly didn't know who Gabriel Byrne was until probably around the time of Miller's Crossing. <laughs> so, um. Well, here, I have a take on why everything was so big. Okay. Um, which goes to my larger theme of these movies that... Better or worse, I think almost all of these movies are the movies that the director really wanted to make. Right. And I think the point was very deliberate because the whole Byron-Shelley circle, that era of romantic literature is the first era where literature becomes about sort of these spontaneous creative energies. And the idea of artistic inspiration is kind of emerging out of them, um, which is a sort of a philosophy of creativity that I absolutely hate, um, if we're going to call back to uh, the last our controversial Coen Brothers podcast, uh, that was something that I, I thought Barton Fink was making fun of, this idea of inspiration, and you get overtaken by the spirit. But I think, I think the point of this movie was like this creative spirit manifest, and of course it would flow through these the Shelley um, Byron circle, because they're the, they're the ones that really pioneered the idea. Right. Well, again, for me, I, I put myself in the shoes of the people in the villa across the lake who are watching these people <laughs> through the spyglasses, you know, they're like, they're trying to catch glimpses of what at the time were major celebrities. It would be like, I don't know, catching a glimpse of Kanye or something like this and doing his creative muse. But to me, what I would see looking through these glasses were a bunch of crazy people screaming at each other and crying and, and beating their chests and being, you know 
absolutely unbearable to be around. Excuse me. Yeah, it would have been good if halfway through the movie, a neighbor was like pounding on the door. Give it down in there, you kids! <laughs> but I, I mean, I didn't. I don't know if I want that scene where I saw that Percy Shelley was a creative genius, or that, you know that I saw Lord Byron, you know, you know, focus this weird, what seems like evil intent into a creative outlet but all i see is just bad people being being awful to each other it didn't yeah well i didn't see the inspiration and i didn't feel inspired by them but i had a hard time looking away from it there is something about the movie like it keeps you watching no matter how crazy the performance or 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 how random the next scene seems to be it doesn't jar you out of it the way typically a david lynch film will eventually shake me off like I stayed with the movie, but I'm not sure that it was that it paid off, it, that it repaid me for for, for my patience. <laughs> um, I don't know if this is along those lines, but you made me think of it. Um, the because you don't like it's got this certain frenetic energy that it's setting up. Um, how did you react to the framing device, the modern day tourists that were catching a glimpse of the house? It didn't make a very big impression on me, to be honest. <laughs> I, I remembered it as you were speaking of it. <laughs> okay. It seemed a, it, an, an awful choice to me. And very, like, talking about a movie that makes you want to look away, like that part. I mean, I guess it was at the very end, uh, well, in the very beginning. But, like, I just couldn't tell what, what it was even doing here. All of a sudden, it seemed like a BBC One production. It's weird. You know what it maybe was trying to be and why I'm having trouble with it? It's like a somehow snooty or fear and loathing in Las Vegas. <laughs> we're, we're seeing these damaged but really, really gifted people. But I'm seeing the damaged, but I'm not seeing the gifts. Like I'm not seeing the creativity penetrate through. Either because of the creative, you know, inspiration or because of actually getting down to the work. Either way, we just don't see it. Yeah, none of them seem. None of them struck me as anybody that could write great literature, uh, which is probably because they weren't writing great literature on opium highs while running around a house. You know, right. it's just a lot of sitting down at a table and doing drafts and stuff. They looked like what they were, right? Idiots. <laughs> just like like it might have been accidentally more authentic than they they, they actually intended, right? Uh, I don't necessarily subscribe to that sort of idea that there's some otherworldly thing that you need to tap into to be creative but i will go so far as to say if you get on a good jag of writing or if you're in a good creative throne it 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 almost feels like you're just transcribing it you know it's you, you know you get into that right zone and uh, some people would almost almost call it spiritual i don't think it is but i understand why people get that feeling and that creative feeling i think is what this movie is trying to be about but what I would recommend it for is just the craziness of it. Like, the ludicrous set pieces, the way over-the-top acting, and sort of the weird kinky nature of the whole movie. It's memorable. Is it good? It's... <laughs> I don't know. It's one that, uh, to borrow your phrase, uh, would be a good sound-off one. Like, I, I could see this playing silently at a hipster bar, right. projected onto some sheet in the background or something like that. That would be its, um, I think, the the best place for it. Um, uh, this is what I was going to say that was a bit of a non sequitur is you said in the intro that one of the nice things about historical horror is they tend to age well. <laughs> uh, 
this movie is so 80s. It is so of the time that it was made. There's nothing about it that's timeless. Uh, Right down to, like, those, those... When something scary would happen, and there'd be a drum solo but like a phil collins type drum solo i like i honestly thought uh he's making this really clumsy um reference to uh i can feel it coming in the air tonight or whatever that that song is um but it just it just made this movie for 1986 and no other year and yet that somehow contributes to the madness of the movie too like the, I think that for a lot of people this would be nails down a chalkboard and for certain people they could sip wine and eat fancy cheese and talk about how brilliant it was but mainly I think that it, it's just one of those movies that's so weird it, it, it's worth kind of a look for how weird it is <laughs> but again that that doesn't quite for me mean it's a recommendation I, I can't think of a single person that I would recommend this to. <laughs> I mean, except for... Like, it's the kind of movie that I would like to see, but I don't think I'll ever see it again. Um, but it's not scary. It's kind of historical, but not really historical. Uh, it's just mad. Like, I don't know if there's anybody that likes mad movies, but it's also quite pretentious, which... <laughs> like, if it had been earnestly mad, that's fine. But I think... Uh, who's the... What's the name of the director again? Uh, Ken, Ken Russell? Russell? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think he wanted m- people to see him as it, an auteur genius. Right. He did an infamous movie called The Devils. He did Altered States. He's uh, The Layer of the White Worm. He, he sort of makes a point of making memorably odd movies. And yes, this is definitely another one of those. <laughs> yeah. I liked The Layer of the White Worm quite a lot, actually, right. when I was a kid. Well, um, someday it will have its time on Rank and Review. Is there anything else you want to say about Gothic? Uh, nope. Just good effort, but uh, I wouldn't watch it if I were you. <laughs> to whoever is listening to me. Not if I were you. So how do you feel about Edgar Allan Poe, Matthew? Um, this movie, uh, Extraordinary Tales, really made me confront that question in, <laughs> in a much realer way than, than I thought I would. I always assumed I liked him, and I, I, I like his stories, but I think I might not like his stories as much as I thought I did. Right. Or maybe it's just I'm a little tired of them so you think you you're kind of worn out on edgar Allan poe is what you're saying it could be um this movie i found it wasn't bad like he his stories aren't bad but it wasn't super compelling either 
where I guess I'll give a breakdown. I mean, it, this is an animated anthology of five Edgar Allan Poe stories, uh, and all of the short films are done by different directors and different styles of animation. I think in typical anthology movie style, they kind of stand or fall on their own because of their own production. What I would say... Yeah, I would agree with that. I would sure. say Extraordinary Tales would work as an interesting introductory, like if you were trying to get a high school age kid excited about classic literature, you know? Here's a smattering of Poe presented in a very visually cool kinetic way to give you an idea of what this dude's about. What doesn't come across in these short little vignettes, well, in, in some cases better than other, the one that Bella Lugosi narrates, I think it kind of comes across, is uh, Poe's liking of the, the flawed narrator, typically the crazy narrator, who yeah. tells you the story from his perspective, and in his perspective, uh, maybe he did some bad things, but he was a genius about it. And uh, he's not mad. It's the world or the scenario that, that the only reason he got caught was some supernatural twist of fate. And yeah. there's something snooty about Poe. There's something uh, uptight, you know, <laughs> and uh, that doesn't come across. <clears throat> I think that the five individual stories are fine. We can talk about them like your favorites or your least as we go through it. I think the big problem for me is the wraparound section. There's a, a crow or a raven, I must assume. That's, it's got to be a raven. <laughs> right? Uh, that's got Poe's spirit in it, and uh, there's an angel of death that's trying to convince Poe it's time to go to the next place, to the next spiritual plane. And he's fighting it, as people do, and for whatever reason is treated to a recounting of a bunch of his own stories. By the way, if I'm having a near-death experience and uh, someone's going to tell me a bunch of stories... Maybe you should tell me stories that I didn't personally write. <laughs> but that's just me. Thanks for that. Maybe they just memorized it by rote, and it just so happened that it was him. But like for everybody else that's dying at that time, particularly before they had to study this stuff in high school, you know, like it's a pretty good experience. Exactly. So again, I'm not a, I'm not passionate about extraordinary tales. I think that if uh, an anthology film of animated post stories sounds interesting to you it's like an hour and 12 minutes of your life give it a look but it's nothing to get super excited about <laughs> yeah i i would i would say there's there's nothing bad about them there's stories that i like better or worse than others uh the one that i've got in my notes it sounded a lot like bella lugosi and then i looked it up and it's an old recording that was a really good uh it was a really good narration i thought that was one of my favorite ones. That was the Telltale Heart. Um, I think the first story was uh, Christopher Lee's last performance. Is that correct? Well, I don't know where it falls, but it's got to be close to it anyway. Yeah. And, and he was I born to do narration. So. <laughs> uh, I read some reviews that were complaining about Guillermo del Toro's narration of The Pit and the Pendulum, but I actually thought he was pretty good. Like, I thought the voice work was pretty strong for the most part. Yeah. Especially, Guillermo's not an actor. He's a director, you know? And I think he did a fine performance of it. I don't know if people have problem with his accent or, or, or what. Like, it was fine. It was but fine. you would think a story set in the Spanish Inquisition, it sort of makes sense that yeah. there would be a Spanish guy narrating. Why the hell not? <laughs> Why the hell not? Uh, the other great thing that I was thinking about with that Bela Lugosi short of the Telltale Heart is uh, 
what a good idea that was. They had to t contact the estate of Bela Lugosi to get permission to do it, but I think that there's a, probably a vast treasure trove of these old recordings that just want to be animated. I'm thinking of like that 1960s version of the Justice League record that you and I were basically obsessed with for yeah. a time. Can you imagine someone just animating that shit? Or uh, some of the... Um, um... Uh, 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 the guy that got really fat and, and me died after the Transformers movie. Oh, Orson uh, Welles. Oh, you're only mostly fat. Uh, Orson Welles. You know what I'm talking about? Orson Welles. Yeah, uh, Orson Welles did all of those 1930 radio recordings for The Shadow. Right. I think you could animate those. That'd be pretty cool. Right. Uh, or yeah, like there's all of this stuff that no one's paying attention to. <laughs> Maybe uh, it's a nice idea of bringing, digging some of this really interesting stuff from the past and, and bringing it to life. Um, and, you know, it's fun to be in the different visual styles. Um, because of the old sort of recording scratchiness of the Bela Lugosi segments, I like that it was all long shadow based drawings and sort of, it, it felt like the, the animation was as aged as the recording. If that makes sense. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, then they we haven't mentioned uh, Julian Sands yet. <laughs> yeah, this is the second, uh, second bill in the double feature. I do think he acquits himself much better in this movie. But I have to ask in earnest, like... This has been... The, Julian Sands has been a working actor since the early 80s. <laughs> how, <laughs> how is it that he does not struggle while other actors starve? <laughs> He's just got those Julian Sands roles that seem made for him. He looks exactly the same, you know, over his 30 or 40 year career, whatever it is. He looks exactly the same in uh, Warlock as he does in Arachnophobia or whatever. I guess they're not too far apart, but, you know, they're several years apart. Yeah. Um, he just always, he's just consistently Julian Sands. Or what was that one we saw? Rose Red. Rose, Rose Red. Red was like... 10 years after Gothic, and he looked exactly the same. And I remember saying in that review, I'm pleasantly surprised by the, <laughs> how I'm not bothered by Julian Sands' performance. This is also a movie that definitely has horror pedigree in it. You got um, Roger Corman doing a voice, like you mentioned, uh, Guillermo de del Toro's doing a voice in it. Uh, a lot of people, I think, who are fanboys of Edgar Allan Poe wanted to contribute themselves to this. I'm sure they were getting paid as well. I don't anybody was volunteering, but uh, mm. there's a lot of interesting names here. Christopher Lee, Bella Lugosi, Guillermo del Toro. I mean, you see those names, the curiosity factor alone would, would draw a lot of people to it, I think. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about most favorites and least favorites? Sure. Because... There was the one was I can't remember what it was called. Was it called "The Facts in the Case of Mr. Voldemar"? Yeah, uh, is that the, the title of it? The, I would say for me that was the best my story. standout favorite. Um, it was animated in the style of those old EC comics, those ones that got banned by the Comic Code Authority a little bit later. Um, it it had it for me. It struck the perfect tone between embodying a certain age. Like a certain bygone age of horror uh, without, well, not, I mean, kind of innocent horror, but still uh, without being too pretentious about it. Like it managed to be historical, but not pretentious. And I thought the, the animation, that animation wouldn't have fit the story of like Pit and the Pendulum, for example, right. um, 
but it did fit that story and i thought for me that was the one where um all the stars lined up the best yeah and it's also the best story i think of the group of five we have the fall of the house of usher the telltale heart facts of the case of mr valdemar uh the mask of red death and the pendulum uh i think of those stories that is probably the strongest um uh, but it's it's between that one and the Telltale Heart, just because I really like the Bela Lugosi performance in that. But they're they're both very strong. Um, mm. I actually liked. Uh, I I mean, none of this story came through, but just for the visuals, I liked Mask of Red Death. I think that was my second favorite. It's another one like Gothic, where it would do well projected onto the wall of a hipster bar. You don't really need to know any of the sound or anything like. It's not even narrated. Right, yeah, and it's the one of the group that isn't narrated. It makes it sort of stand out. I also have to go back to the wraparound, that this angel of death talking to the raven. Um, it was, I'm pretty sure, originally a Spanish-language feature, but it being animated, it was easy enough to, to switch over. I'm thinking yeah. that a lot of that dialogue might have sounded less cheesy and, like, grating <laughs> in its original Spanish, but... There's something really clunky about the the conversations between Death and the and the Raven. I, anytime we cut back to that, I'm like, oh my god, get to the next story. <laughs> well, also the Raven voice, like that was just the worst possible choice for voice actor they could have come, like they could have found. Like it should have been that should have been, you know, when when the Miyazaki movies get into English, like Howl's Moving Castle or something. The Raven's voice would have been appropriate for one of those, but right. this is like a creepy story, and there's something so I don't or like I, if anybody has seen the Last Unicorn, that may be a bit of a deep cut, but right. it, it would have been voice quality suitable for that kind of movie. But it didn't raise the stakes or anything. Your audio, no, it just didn't sound right. Your audio just went down a level for some reason. You sound farther away all of a sudden. Did the cord get pulled? Oh, oh no. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I I haven't done anything different, so it's on your end. Okay, you're failing as a podcast director. <laughs> um, I think we're coming around to a pretty lukewarm feeling on this. It's 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 not something that you can get passionate about and say no, don't watch it. But it's not something to get so excited about to say you must watch it. I, I think that that list of names and Edgar Allan Poe, if that does it for you, great. I don't know if it does Poe justice. I don't know what does Poe justice. I I like Poe, but I, I'm not like foaming at the mouth over him. Like, but I I have yet to see that movie that sort of captures the the smugness of the horror in Poe. If that makes sense, like, there's something about well, his narrators. You... They're, they're 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 rich. They're smug. They're like arrogant. They. And they're they're telling a story usually of their own downfall, but somehow they're not aware of it. <laughs> well, what I think you need for Poe is to be nineteen or twenty years old, Maybe. and it's your your first brush with old literature that's kind of interesting. But there is something slightly repetitive, perhaps slightly like I actually like his prose, but his stories are like. It's always the same thing. It's somebody that's obsessed. It deals with obsession in in the way that, I mean, it's basically an emotion that doesn't really exist the way it does in Poe stories, but it's all these really obsessed people in implausible situations, and it's good for a certain time in your life, but it's not, I don't really think it's great horror. It's, it's, It's foundational, but I don't think it's all that great. 
But it's a primer. I mean, if if, if you want to, if you don't know much about Poe and you want to sort of dip your feet in the water, this is a, 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 an okay entry point. At some point, do yeah. your due diligence and read the stories. <laughs> but uh, yeah. this is this is like a Poe book with lots of pictures. Yeah, yeah, and I would say, like, I'm being hard on it. I don't think it's bad. There's basically nothing in it that's bad. The animation style for the Pit and the Pendulum felt it looked a little bit too much like Skyrim to me. I don't. I think that's not gonna that kind of computer animation is not gonna age super well. That said, there's nothing there's nothing bad about it. It's like. Uh, Principal Skinner said for the diorama contest, the Edgar Allan Poe diorama contest, uh, a little sterile, no real insight. <laughs> you know, that, that's what I would say. It's like good, but not that special. May I have absolute silence? Sit. Stand. Silence in the corridors and the communal areas. Skirts no more than two inches from the ground when kneeling. If I were to fly on the wall in your house, what would I see? You're quite an influence on the others. You are not to fraternize with any of these girls. Who was the first person in your age group to show symptoms? You all know something is wrong. is a bizarre psychological horror question mark movie set in 1969 at a girl's school where after a tragic event takes place uh, a series of mysterious fainting epidemics break out uh, particularly centered around one girl Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones um, and it seems also to be somehow tied in with her sort of rebellious spirit and her relationship, her intense relationship with her best friend. Um, yeah, it's and a, her agoraphobic mother becomes more and more of a presence. As we can get into it. It's one of these strange movies that's more felt than anything else. Uh, I have a little bit of experience in making movies. I've produced a short film. I'm in post-production on a feature film. And I like to think that... I may not be a professional, but I know what I'm doing. And I could never make a movie like this. I wouldn't know where to begin. Like, so much of it seems to be built on stacking shots on top of each other to elicit a feeling. Very, very sparse dialogue that gives us information about the characters, but not in a very obvious way. And just yeah. a consistent tone of uncomfortableness. And very minimal plot, too. Yeah. Like, honestly, it's the after we're just gonna yeah there's spoilers you put the spoiler there's alert spoilers um so when Maisie Williams best friend dies um Maisie Williams sort of faints in class and then there's like this epidemic of all the girls in her all girls school um just passing out during the middle of whatever activity they're doing and it even spills over to the art teacher and almost to the headmistress she just about faints at one point um and then there's the question about one what's causing this but two are the girls just making it up like yeah. are they just 
that's certainly what the authority figures believe and want to believe and uh apparently it's based on true events and there's like nothing about that explanation at least to me that doesn't sound really fascinating but it's interesting this is a hundred minute movie and it feels like a two and a half hour movie like it, it, it it's like a portrait they keep on going back to this exterior shot of a pond and a tree and the reflection of the tree in the water and uh, uh again uh, it feels it feels like an art film but there's real meat to it there's like a mystery that i want to get into but i'm not sure if the movie lets me but i'm curious about it i'm sort of hungry for it to be maybe more than it is but it did stick with me. I will give it that. Uh, what do you think of The Falling? Um, yeah, that's a terrific question. I have no idea what I think of The Falling. Um, so I, I went online after I'd finished watching it, and I was reading some reviews. And it's the kind of movie that gets a lot of 9 out of 10s and 10 out of 10s. And a lot of 1 um, it get, out of 10s. It gets a couple of like 7 out of 10s. <laughs> The reviews are really high, and the people that it affects, it affects really deeply, and it's definitely doing something right. Uh, I personally was quite bored in a lot of points. I kept hoping for something, but this might be one of those movies where it just it wasn't for me, but it was really good at being what it was. Right. My, my big note, as far as the tone goes, is it's like... Uh, if the movie Heavenly Creatures was a Canadian novel, right. it's kind of meandering, and there's lots of implicit sighs on, like, ah, but it works for some people. It like works really powerfully for some people. There's also a really bizarre musical score. Like the girls are part of this strange percussion instrument uh, group. Uh, where they get together and play this music, and then that music sort of fills in the background as we're watching this movie. And again, it sends out a vibe. It's a movie that kind of is strangely hypnotizing. But it's really good at pushing that vibe. But it, it, it it's a movie that seems so fascinating. Like I said, at the end of the day, I don't know why they're, they're having these fainting spells. Sometimes it seems like it's when they're lashing out or they're being, you know, they're, they're, they're throwing off the shackles of, you know, being held back. You know, they're embracing their feminism or whatever. And that somehow being defiant triggers a faint. Maybe that's it, but we don't know. One of the mm. girls seems strangely resistant to it. And she almost believes that it's a big fainting epidemic. And then eventually it hits her as well. But I don't understand why it hit her. But it yeah. was kind of effective that it did. But... What, what does it mean? <laughs> and if you want a movie that gives you answers, The Falling's going to let you down. But the director, Carol Morley, I mean, I would watch another one of her movies because I really feel like emotionally she had me on board. Psychologically, she had me on board. And me wanting the movie to be more than what it was is maybe isn't necessarily what a flaw that she had in the movie. Maybe it was... She wanted that sense of wonder. She wanted it's that, that inexplicable mystery to just be that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm actually going to... Um, maybe I'll try to tie two things in. Because uh, you mentioned the soundtrack earlier and then um, the possibility of there being a flaw. For me, I found... My note on the soundtrack is I found it actually quite intrusive. Oh, yeah. uh, it was too much. Um, because it was a 
pop singer who like she went solo vocalist i can't remember what band she's from but it reminded me a lot of those late 60 counterculture movies um jonathan livingston siegel being a particularly egregious uh example uh silent runnings with bruce stern where everything uh, stops for a song <laughs> for a bigger audience like the graduate where like hello darkness my own old friend comes on like three or four times and the whole movie stops just so you can have that yeah and you're like i get it director you're counterculture and you like that song but <laughs> you it's 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 fighting the atmosphere of the movie in a lot of ways it's certainly fighting like if you're making a period piece it's fighting that but it's just too much like it it breaks what the movie wants to be and that raised the possible specter that this movie has a really stupid simplistic moral <laughs> about this kind of oppressive patriarchal society is leading like whenever any girls feel rebellious or creative then they pass out which is it's like fine but that's the kind of thing that you should do in film school that's <laughs> Well, but I don't know that that's what it is. I just, just because it had that counterculture late '60s movie vibe, it reminded me of those really stupid, simplistic morals, um, like this is ecological degradation or this is mm-hmm. symbolism, symbolism. Um, but that was just that was just a specter of that because I'm not accusing it of that. I'm just saying it kind of opened the door a crack for me. The weird thing is that that could be there for you if you want it. The other thing is, is that uh, I have spent some time thinking that Maisie Williams' character was weirdly being consumed or even possessed by her friend, so much to the point where she almost sleeps with her brother because her friend had been in a relationship with her brother, so now she somehow wants to be in a relationship with her brother. And again, mm-hmm. there's no clear answer made with that, like why what that whole scene was about. Was she being possessed? Is there something supernatural about it? Like, uh, we don't know. Uh, that's another like how would you classify this film like I, I, uh, it's listed as a psychological horror movie but no way uh, drama drama maybe yeah so like it could be that it but it could be a lot of other things in a way it's it's the Bible it's so malleable it can be whatever you want <laughs> it to be right <laughs> and uh, does that make it brilliant or does that make it pointless if it can mean anything and nothing then like I guess that's why people respond to it they they get out of the movie what they want to so I've I've been really enjoying uh, the animated show Rick and Morty Yay. this season. <laughs> And this movie kind of reminded me of that. Like, I get that there are people that hate or don't get Rick and Morty, and that's fine. It's not necessarily for them. Right. But in my opinion, that show is great. Uh, it's brilliant. This, I'm not sure if it's brilliant, but it's, like, encroaching upon brilliant. But I'm just one of those people that doesn't... It's just not for me. I'm not its target audience. So right. I found myself getting a little restless. Thankfully, I had laundry to do that night. So after, like, an hour and... 20 minutes I could do some ironing or something uh it didn't speak to me but I get that it was good and I it's one that there are a lot of people that I would recommend it to right it's strange like I I would almost accuse it of this feedback that I would get sometimes with my writing as a younger fellow is like uh the audience doesn't have to know what the twist is or or what the secret meaning is if you want to if you want to leave it open you can leave it open but I feel like at some point the author had to make a decision. Yeah. And I don't know if the author made a decision here. 
I think that the you know it's the same writer director Carol Morley like I again I I I will give her the benefit of doubt and say that what she wanted to do was cast this emotional spell of wonder and if that's all she was doing then I guess mission accomplished but if she was trying to tell me a story or make me learn about this mysterious fainting epidemic or or give me any kind of answers she kind of failed well, so. yeah, but maybe that's the point. Like, I, I'm, I don't think there's any reason to think that she necessarily wanted to tell a story. So, like, if you imagine that all she wanted you to do was feel emotions or think about things a little bit askew or something like that, again, it, that I, I don't tend to like um, purely impressionistic movies, but if that's the movie she was going for, then I think she did... She she did what she set out to do. Yeah. Uh, so, kind of like Gothic, um, this is exactly the movie that it wants to be. I think that it's more watchable than Gothic, but less engaging somehow. Oh, good, nice, nice, nice uh, paradox there. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I, I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but to me that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I'm. This is like the least helpful review ever, but. Watch the falling and make up your own mind. <laughs> Honestly, there's this is going to be really dated by the time this uh, this podcast drops. But it seems to me a lot like uh, what I'm reading and hearing about the movie Mother, right? Which is basically it's either like four out of four or one out of four. Uh, but if this is the kind of movie you like, you'll really like this movie, right? So if it sounds really intriguing, then then give it a try. But uh, if you're looking for a horror movie, if you're looking for something to scare you, I would steer you away. If you're looking for something that's kind of interesting and touchy-feely, then definitely The Falling. Plus, you know, a lot of girls and schoolgirl outfits. Yeah, yeah. You're, so you're, if that you're, works for you. You're going to get on some, some lists for this podcast. I'm on all the lists. I hoped that no one would ever find cause to open this letter. I must assume that unexplained or even supernatural events have begun to occur. Betsy appears to suffer from violent nightmares. That was no nightmare. Are we all having nightmares now, Professor? So here we are again talking about a ghost movie, Matthew. <laughs> I tricked you into doing yet another ghost review. <laughs> you said no ghost, <laughs> just historical. Uh, yeah, an American haunting is supposedly based on true events of the only document. And it's supposed to be about a witch. Yeah, it's supposed to be the only documented case in U.S. history where a spirit was said to cause a death of a man. Um, so. It's one of these PG-rated ghost movies that's supposed to be a big date night sort of, you know, weekend opener. 
the thing that gave it some interesting factor to me is a the historical context and the presence of Donald Sutherland and Sissy Spacek as the main sort of husband and wife of the family that we're, we're, we're dealing with. I figure, you know, yeah, it looks like just another ghost movie, but surely with that cast and a halfway decent premise, I'm going to have something interesting to see here, right? Right? <laughs> well, and the other thing is, Donald Sutherland will be in crappy movies, but Sissy Spacek, like, she's kind of respectable. Yeah. And time was, uh, Lee and I have done this episode where we're talking about 70s horror movies, and he's in two fantastic ones, uh, Don't Look Now and The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you know? He doesn't look down his nose at horror movies. Donald Sutherland will bring it. And I don't think he sucks in the movie, but I don't necessarily feel like he was passionate <laughs> about it either. Oh, this was I thought a he paycheck. sucked in the movie. This was a paycheck performance, and it was on his face, and... That's disappointing by itself, because typically I find Donald Sutherland will give you your money's worth if you put him in your movie. So what we fall back on is this ghost story, this riveting ghost story. Why is this bell witch spirit, you know, tormenting these farmers, and, and why specifically their daughter? And how does it relate to this present storyline of a mother and daughter who are moving into a... <laughs> Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, hate, I hate to sorry, do this mean, but like... Just three for three on horrible framing devices. <laughs> like, framing devices that didn't need to be there and <laughs> took away from movies that weren't fantastic to begin with. Um, about the only positive thing I can say, I mean, it's got a good cast, but the, none of them seem that excited to be there. The production values are fairly strong. There's a couple of memorable sequences of, you know, supernatural events, uh, a, a horse carriage being flipped over quite dramatically. Uh, the period is fairly authentically, you know, presented. No, it isn't. It's like... They're too clean. It's so horrible. It's so, like, I think, like, if you describe any character in it, the only adjective is, like, you know, they're historical, I guess. <laughs> like, they've got these really kind of tortured, uh, tortured, I mean, like, acting-wise, these tortured drawls, terrible accents, um, no personality. There's lots of historical anachronisms. It's, it's... It's fucking terrible. It really, really is. And it's hard to, like... It's hard to describe, like, how none of this holds together. It seems like all the ingredients for a good movie are present here. But something just isn't connecting. Something's not closing the deal. Well, I have a theory. Okay. It's written and directed by a gentleman by the name of Courtney Solomon. Yes. The only other thing he's written and directed is the <laughs> insane masterpiece Dungeons and Dragons. Oh my god. <laughs> and this is his second best movie. <laughs> well, let's give him this. He's improved. <laughs> no way. Dungeons and Dragons was so much better than this. <laughs> At least it was it was something. This everything about this sucked. <laughs> so, I mean, was Dungeons and Dragons such a hit that, that someone gave him a big bag of money to create this? Like, now I'm just angry. <laughs> no, so he's he had his own production company, and he produced a ton of movies. All of them were the worst. And then 
it's kind of like when um, Seth MacFarlane tries to do something that isn't Family Guy, and it's just the worst, because it's a lot of ego and not a lot of talent. Right. Well, this idea, this, this landowner makes a deal with this woman who's got an infamous reputation, uh, and he lends her some money and then like basically demands a ridiculous rate of return on the investment and uh he gets hung up by the local church his good name is is you know found to be besmirched and he has this huge falling out with this lady who very publicly shames him and curses him immediately following that according to the narration of the story he decides to take solace by molesting his daughter well, I think he might have been molesting her anyway. Like, that was the closest thing, the closest thing to something that was clever in this film, where at the very beginning he mentioned to his wife that she was a deep sleeper and she never even heard him getting out of bed. And then at the end, when we find out she knows that he was a molester, she's like, I heard you. Right. So and I think we the molesting liking, was something that just happened. We stop liking the Sissy Spacek character as soon as that happens. And <laughs> although we want to be sympathetic to Donald Sutherland, the more we learn about him, the less that's possible. So then all we have is uh, Rachel Wood, uh, who's playing this as a victimized daughter. Um, and again, I guess some of those su sequences to someone who's never seen a horror movie before could be described as superficially frightening. But Could they? I mean, it's kind of like they're... This movie is to horror as Bazooka Joe comics are to humor. Right. <laughs> like, you kind of get where there might be something that technically counts, but it's not. Like, yeah. it's just... Uh, my final note was, uh, oh, God, it's over uh, after, like, two and a half hours. And then I checked the running time, and it's only 90 minutes. It's right. such a long 90 minutes. And, again, this is the mystery of the movie, like... <laughs> With that cast and a ghost premise, you'd think that, like, there would be a couple of scenes where, you know, we'd hear the backwood tales of the Bell Witch and be, ooh, that's kind of creepy. Or, or we'd get something, anything unexpected. Uh, all of the choices seem to be the most easy and obvious. And I didn't find it to be a great intriguing twist that it turned out he was molesting his daughter. In a way, it then made me question, well, then... How much of this was supernatural after all said and done? Was he the first man to be killed by a supernatural? <laughs> <laughs> and again, well, that, but that might take us to the frame narrative, right? <laughs> which is a present day woman. Is she present day or is this nineteen seventies? I think it's present to the movie. So let's say two thousand five, present day. And her daughter. It starts with her daughter running through the woods, and then she comes home, and she's all sick. And then the mother is, like, reading these manuscripts that she found somehow. And so the movie that we're watching are these manuscripts. And then it goes to present day. And then we learn that whatever is happening to her daughter is because she's getting molested by the, her own father. Yeah. And then the last scene is the present day mother, like, the father's getting custody. So he's driving away in the car and she's screaming and running down the road. And, like, well, phones exist now. Like, yeah. call the cops. Call him. Like, it's not... It's it's not like he's driving away in a carriage or something. <laughs> and also her daughter is like 25. Yeah. <laughs> She's, it, it just doesn't have that punch. 
For a movie that is, let's just say it then, more about sexual abuse than it is about ghosts, it kind of flinches when it comes to the subject of sexual abuse. Like, is it taking it that seriously? Because I would argue, no, it is fucking not. And in the meantime, it's sure not being scary or suspenseful or engaging. So, like, you gotta justify your existence somehow. Well, and where I thought it was going to go was with slavery, because the movie is actually very conscious of slaves. Mm -hmm. So in the first trial, like the lawsuit, um, one of the things, there was something about slaves, either he ended up taking her slaves because she owed him money, or or he lent her her slaves and she didn't pay him back. So there's slavery, and then there's slaves that show up every now and then during the various, quote, scary scenes, and like, okay, so this is maybe something about, like, this unaddressed cultural trauma of slavery, but like, nope, they're just slaves, they just show up, and they're slaves. Again, all of the set dressing would suggest something interesting will happen eventually, and at no point does it pay off, even slightly. This is the type of PG horror movie that really pisses me off. Like, it's just, it's product. It's chum the waters and people will swim up. And I resent it because I'm one of the fucking people who swam up. So. Well, and I resent you because you made me watch it. So. You would have never seen this movie if not for Rankin Review. <laughs> You're welcome for that. But our service today, and I like to think that, that you know, there's, I imagine that there's an audience out there. That, that might take me seriously when I say, if you haven't seen an American haunting, great. <laughs> Just stay where you are. Never be tempted by it. If you're channel surfing and you see, oh, Donald Sutherland, Sissy Smith. Oh, right. No, I should not watch this. No, <laughs> like, you, you'll regret every moment of not turning that off. There's no life in it. There's just, there's no spark. There's no nothing. You can't even, this isn't even the movie necessarily that, the like, like, oh, so returning to Gothic, not for everybody, but it was clearly the movie that the director wanted to make. This one is just going through the motions. Yeah. It's not memorably bad. It's such, like... It's such product that it really does feel like a computer wrote it, <laughs> you know, like it was it was a permutation, not a creative enterprise. And uh, it, it, it uh, this whole episode seems to have been made up of so far of lukewarm reviews. This is the movie that made me angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, and like, I've seen some bad movies for this podcast, and it's it's not loudly bad in an interesting way that I can sort of laugh at. It's just, it's just soul draining. It's just upsetting to me that it exists. That Which millions is why of dollars were I, I spent think, on making it. It, it offends me. <laughs> this is why I think it's a lot worse than Dungeons and Dragons, because Dungeons and Dragons. You know, if I was visiting my parents' house and it was on TV and I didn't have anything to do, I would watch it because it's charmingly terrible. <laughs> but this is just boringly terrible. You can't laugh at it. And you can't be scared by it. And you can't be interested by it. And with that cast and that premise, this should have been at least okay. Shame on everybody involved. <laughs> <laughs> I think that should be the review on the back of the Blu-ray. <laughs> Rankin Review says, shame on all involved. Good enough? I think we've, uh, 
Uh, I mean, it, we've been a little gentle on it, but uh, good enough. So, what brings you to Stonehurst? I've always been fascinated by the troubled mind, since as long as I can remember. I have the desire and the training. All I lack is a clinical experience. Most patients are here because they are embarrassments to their families. There are few therapies better at restoring the soul than music. Don't you agree, Doctor? Beautiful. Interesting case, this one. His family sold him off to a sideshow when he was a child. Hello? Suicidal tendencies are not uncommon amongst the deranged. Did he stab himself in the back as well? You do not belong here. Tell me what's going on. I am Dr. Benjamin Salt, rightful superintendent of Stonehurst Asylum. When you have found a thing a man fears most, you will have discovered the key to his madness. Why did you come here? I came here for you. So I have this bit of a crush on this director, Brad Anderson. Mm -hmm. um, Session 9 is one of my favorite horror movies. I don't know what it is about that movie, but it gets under my skin. And it, it, it's most of the time I find horror movies get diluted. The more you watch them, the less Im impact you get out of them. But for some reason, Session 9 remains a creepy fucking movie. <laughs> and I keep on waiting for Brad Anderson to make another movie as good as Session 9. He's made some good ones. He's made some not-so-good ones, but... When I heard about this adaptation of another Edgar Allan Poe story, and I saw this cast, I got excited. And that might have been, like, a problem. <laughs> <laughs> because I will say that I did like the movie, I did enjoy watching it, and I will give it a recommendation. But to a much smaller degree than what I said about An American Haunting. With this premise, and with this cast, and with this director, I think I was expecting something great. And what I got was something good. <laughs> um, and um, I don't know if that's me, or if that's the movie. So I guess I will ask you that question. Yeah, I had a different experience. Uh, I didn't know it was the guy who did Session 8 or Session 9 that... <laughs> The session number that I <laughs> perpetually stumble <laughs> over that I thought was a brilliant movie. Um, off the bat, this movie reminded me of that Guillermo del Toro movie that I didn't like that much, Crimson Peak, was right. it? Yeah. Where it was like a period piece, but it wasn't, it never really felt like a period piece. Like it felt like a high budget, you know, they're at this asylum that looks like it was designed by set designers that were trying to come up with this asylum. <laughs> and I was watching it with my head a little bit askew, uh, not, not that optimistic. Um, but I got to say, I was having a little bit of a crisis that I was thinking that maybe I don't like movies anymore, <laughs> but I really honestly enjoyed this movie. It surprised me quite a lot. And I'll tell you, well, part of it had to do with the fact that I had no expectations or kind of low expectations. Right. Uh, but also, I mentioned before in the Edgar Allan Poe uh, review that I liked the story that had the aesthetics of those old EC comics. And for me, this felt like if those old EC comics were a movie. So, like, it wasn't super scary and it was a little trite, but it was so... 
into what it was. It was so good at being what it was that, you know, in spite of the fact that I don't think it was a terrific movie, I really, really enjoyed it. Well, and that's the thing. Like, uh, it's got an amazing British cast. I guess we should talk a little bit about the plot. Um, (laughs) Jim Sturgis plays this doctor who comes to Stonehurst Asylum. Um, He'd seen these presentations. Uh, It's a famous place where they're doing innovative work on psychology and mental illness uh, for the time. And uh, that's one of the many themes about this, like how people are treating mental illness in the period and and, uh, the good and bad aspects of that. Uh, (laughs) Were there good aspects of that? (laughs) Yes, well, uh, he meets the always super attractive Kate Beckinsale, who is a very victimized, put-upon person in in the movie. Um, And, yeah, I mean, it's a spoiler-friendly show, but so we'll just get right to it. There's been a change in the staff at the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Uh, We find out uh, relatively quickly, and that's one of my questions to you, perhaps too quickly, that in the bowels of the hospital, in this sort of dungeon area, the actual staff has been imprisoned, and the inmates have taken over. (laughs) And uh, this particularly brilliant inmate, uh, played fairly memorably by Ben Kingsley, (laughs) Uh, is actually trying to treat the patients, and in some cases, doing a better job of it than the original curator, Michael Caine, was. In fact, I would say in all cases, the (laughs) thing that he's bad at is maintaining the asylum, so they're not getting, you know, at some point they're going to end up burning the furniture because they're out of fuel for heat, the food stores are running low, uh, the opium addicts have raided the drug closet, so so, uh, on a practical level, things are falling apart, but I mean, the the guy that thinks he's a horse, Ben Kingsley just treats him like a a horse in a very respectful way. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's sort of his general attitude towards the inmates that, you know, like that, that there's no reason to torture them or to send them away or anything. Just treat them with respect. Yeah. I feel like it was like weirdly touching in some ways. Yeah. Well, I feel like the movie had these two cards to play, right? There was the twist that the uh, inmates had taken over the asylum. And then there was the twist that the inmates were arguably doing a better job <laughs> running the asylum. But I feel like, in a way, both of those cards dropped a little bit early. So I would disagree with you there as well. Um, in that, personally, like there are some stories that have really good twists. Um, I've mentioned it before, but the first time I saw the the ring, the Japanese version, but it would have been the same if I'd seen the American one first. The twist at the end of that was terrific. Um, Usual Suspects, I think it was a good twist, um, Sixth Sense, something like that. But the problem with movies that completely rely on the twist, they don't have a huge rewatchability. Whereas I tend to like stories that foreground, like if, if in the first scene, you had the inmates taking over the asylum. As long as you tell that story well, I think it can work. Right. Like The point is not to surprise people. And one of the things that I think it did a good job of was the ambiguity, because there's lots there. Was it a good thing or a bad thing that these guys took over the asylum? Because certainly uh, the treatment of the inmates is a lot better, but the place is also falling apart, and they'll yeah. be dead if something doesn't happen soon. Yeah. They're mentally in a better place, arguably, some of them. Uh, I think what I get out, what, what I like about the movie is the, the performances. Like, 
I like that David Thewlis plays this, like, nakedly evil henchman. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, I like Michael Caine has got that classic Michael Caine delivery that makes you want to sympathize with him. But the more you learn about this dude, the more you think maybe he should be in that game. <laughs> and, uh... Also, a very small, a small but, I think, huge thing... This is one of the rare movies where the leading lady is almost a full decade older than the leading man. Yep. It's not like some gross 45-year-old that's got some hot 18-year-old love interest. Yeah. Um, and again, that's where they try to make the this, this late-in-the-game other twist or another card to play where we find out that he actually came to Stonehurst specifically to find and rescue her, which... Uh, I don't know. I'd have to go back and rewatch it. I'm not sure if all those pieces fit for me. That mission maybe just got sidelined by all the other well, insanity. Can, can I jump in here? Please. Because one of the one of the criticisms I had throughout most of it was like he met her and fell in love instantly, and yeah. I I just thought it was too quick. Like I get it. You're both the hottest people in the asylum. You're you guys are going to end up together, but it seemed like he just decided one day that he was in love with her. Mm-hmm. But he was also a quote insane person and he had fallen in love with her long before and this was his whole plan to meet her and rescue her so then it it made sense how abrupt it was that he fell in love with her and she certainly didn't fall in love with him she was very resistant to him very resistant to him yeah um it's the performances that make it work for me and sort of like the the how it turns kind of crazy and fun (laughs) <laughs> like uh, when uh, you know everybody gets to take turns being the doctor and the patient, and that's uh, has different varying degrees of, of horrifyingness. Uh, when one of the big bad gets uh, his comeuppance, it's not he doesn't just get electrocuted; he gets electrocuted and bursts into flames. Right? <laughs> that's sort of EC comic over the co- the bigness of it. It, it, yeah. it starts out presenting itself as this very poised costume drama, but I think at its heart, it's a much sort of uh, <laughs> silly or affair even <laughs> it's fun you know yeah yeah and it was like a nice tonal mix like weirdly you would think it's a movie so like american haunting it just thought it was more important than it was or something it took itself very seriously and had nothing interesting to say right this movie doesn't take itself super seriously and has something kind of interesting to say right <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> like, I remain a fan of Brad Anderson. I do think like uh, he's a guy who can do almost any genre well, and he is able to get a good cast just on the strength of his name. But <clears throat> I maybe it's just the the problem with when you make a masterpiece that early in your career. <laughs> uh, I'm thrilled that he had a big box office success with the call, and that. That Halle Berry thing helped him to write his own ticket for a little while, but uh, in his collection of movies, that movie is just okay. I think that this movie is much more interesting than that one. But Wait, sorry, which the one, the Halle Berry one? The Call. It was a big hit a couple of years ago that he directed. It was one of the more mainstream things he's ever done, but it it helped sort of raise his <laughs> status a little bit because <clears throat> a lot of the smaller movies he makes, like Trans Siberian, just. They're critically, people seem to find them interesting and like them, but they don't find an audience. They just blips on the radar. So it's kind of cool that he was able to make a huge blockbuster hit so that he was able to put together something like this to follow it up. (laughs) 
I'm cheering for Brad Anderson. I don't think this is another masterpiece, but I do think this is worth a look. Yeah, it by no means is this a terrific movie. Um, I don't even know if I would... If I had a friend that was asking, like, what's a really good kind of creepy period piece to watch I'm not even sure that I would necessarily recommend it but what I can say is I really enjoyed watching it and I enjoyed watching it way more than I thought I would like 15 minutes in I thought it would be tedious um, completely tonally different uh, than session 8 or session 9 or whatever <laughs> session that is uh, I'm making a joke of the fact that I don't remember but I honestly don't remember it's, it's one of those two uh, but the, I mean that movie just scared the crap out of me when I watched it. I watched it with you. Yeah. You saw me with a blanket on my head like a baby. <laughs> this, is, this is nothing like that. Uh, but it's good. It's just it's it's earnest. It's charming. Um, and I like that it, it isn't what it presents itself to be right away. Like again, that feeling that you have, like you know what this movie is, but then the movie isn't what you expect in a way that is good. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it presents itself to be something else, so then and it becomes this increasingly weird, fun ride. Again, I don't want to foam at the mouth over it, but uh, I continue to be a fan of Brad Anderson. Please check out Stonehurst Asylum. Yep, I give, I give it a uh, well. Like I said, I don't know if I would actually recommend it because I could see somebody that's kind of cynical not liking it, and then that ruins my cred. Uh, but. <laughs> I naively liked it. it. Again, I grew up on horror comics. It reminded me of a very enjoyable 90-minute uh, horror comic. Yeah. What went we out into this wilderness to find? Leaving our country, kindred, our father's houses. For what? For the kingdom of God. Let us pray. this family so there's been all of this buzz and talk about this horror movie Canadian made horror movie called The Witch and uh there's always a problem when you hear about a horror movie with a lot of buzz and a brand new director. Is it going to live up to it? What's it going to be? 
this is one of those horror movies that, as far as I'm concerned, exceeded the buzz that was given to me. Like, I really, really liked this movie. But it's another one of these ones. I mean, we were talking about Session 9, where it kind of, the atmosphere of the piece just soaks into you. It is about, well, it's about a religious extremism, let's be fair, or religious zealots. Uh, a, a group of farmers, settlers, break off from their sort of religious sect because I guess they're not faithful enough and decide to sort of cut their own life out of the edge of this wilderness and live completely autonomously alone. And the whole movie is presented with this period formal dialogue. It was well researched and apparently that he took sort of writings from the time to sort of build this, this text together. So there is something strangely formal about it and something that's almost uh, holds you back. You're not watching Shakespeare, but there's sort of a, another layer of separation that asks you to work with the movie, that sort of forces you to listen to the movie. <laughs> um, the action sort of centers around the family's children, in particular the eldest daughter, and the suspicion that perhaps she has become corrupt. Either her faith wasn't strong enough or some force in the woods, perhaps a witch, has taken control of her. Because uh, very shortly after they arrive and start settling in, the baby of the family, while under her supervision, vanishes. And a bunch of dominoes start to fall. And the weight of the situation and their isolation creates this tension that builds and builds and builds to a fairly incredible and unforgettable climax. <laughs> Well, and also, uh, well, just, I guess not also, like the tension building, a bunch of gross farm stuff happens with her. Like she drops an egg and it's got a fertilized chicken embryo in it, yeah. or she milks the goat and blood starts coming out with the milk. Uh, and at one point she tells her bratty brother and sister that she's a witch and she gives a very creepy monologue and she's just trying to scare them. We think but we're not quite sure but then they tell the parents that she's a witch and the mom who seems to have something against her pretty early on not exactly right from the start but is seems a Harder little bit eager her. to believe that she's a witch yeah it's interesting because the supernatural element is absolutely real to them at all times, right? You never have that scene where they question it or doubt it. In fact, the most obvious answer to them is, yes, uh, a devil has corrupted our daughter. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, that the devil is playing along. So there's that scene where the brother is really sick and he might die. So they all go around and pray. But the two little kids start freaking out because they've forgotten their prayers. And that is actually because, uh, as it turns out, they've been, uh, we're not exactly quite sure what their relationship with the devil is, but they had some relationship with the devil, but he's gotten into their brains and they can't remember scripture anymore. What do they call the goat? Black Francis? Black? Uh, Philip. Black, Black Philip. Philip. Yeah. Uh, I really... <laughs> I, I, there's a documentary on the film where it was like, uh, never work with goats, never work with goats. But uh, for all the time and frustration, it was worth it, you guys, because that goat's fucking creepy. <laughs> yeah, that goat is like, it, like after seeing that goat, no wonder goats are the symbol of the devil. <laughs> like there's just enough intelligence and evil in his eyes. And it's just a legit goat. There's no CGI there's, I mean, things that I loved about this movie. There's very little ambient music. There are no bombastic 
Almost no jump scares. Pardon? Almost no jump scares. It's not a movie. Almost no jump scares. Yeah. It's it's not a movie um, about two, that. The two little kids. Um, so like, good. Because Creepy Little Kids is kind of a it's a genre that's getting really threadbare because now it's like scary or like creepy string music in the background where they do something that's supposed to be creepy but to have them running around being kids uh and they're they've got like this nobody's paying attention to them uh but they you know they've got this black philip chant the black philip black philip uh, i can't remember all of it but if you go back um i mean you can just google what the the lyrics are uh it is it is obviously a prayer to the devil, but if you're not exactly paying attention, it could just be kids doing nursery rhymes. Like, right. there's nothing in that movie that's like, you will be scared now, but everything just works so quietly together to create such a terrific atmosphere. Another one of the fantastic things about this movie is, yeah, it's very honest about the period and about the people in it and how they are run by their religious beliefs. And in spite of how rough their lifestyle is, and in spite of the strict uh, household that is run with those kids, I really like this family. Yeah. Like, I care about them. <laughs> and, 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 like, I, 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 I fear for them right away. There's just there's something about those bare shots of the trees and just how alone and isolated then how rickety the, that farm is. Like, it feels like any one of those buildings could just fall over at any time uh and uh they're just trying to make a go of it by themselves because they're just they're not willing to compromise they're a bunch of fucking klingons like i probably shouldn't like them but i do i i really well, really the thing do. is like they're humans right like even though they've got extreme beliefs they're human like they're human a human family that love each other and care about each other um at least at the beginning, take care of each other. Um, and so, like, their weirdo religious beliefs are like, I don't know what, like, it adds to the creepy element because they just, you just know they're going to hold on so hard to those. But it's not like Stephen King religious beliefs where it's, like, just way over the top and, like, if you believe in God, you're crazy. You're going to be evil or crazy and you deserve to die. Um, I also thought just when you were talking about the woods that there's a whole bunch of um, idioms in English but like you know we're not out of the woods yet or something like that that we don't really think too much of but of course this is the time where that idiom would have started to exist and yeah woods were fucking scary like (laughs) being on the outside of them looking in that's a scary place and then when they're on the inside of them they're even scarier yeah uh Question. Early in the movie, we actually see the witch. Like, we cut to this dark place in the woods, some sort of cabin or something sort of hovel cut out of the trees. And we see this naked back and we hear this muttering sound. And I remember thinking, like, is this too soon? Like, did, did we want to, like, leave that the entity in the woods as, like, just the woods? It's just the darkness. It's just the atmosphere. Because a part of me thought, as creepy as those shots were, the, the movie almost didn't need them. You definitely, when you get to the climax of the movie, you did. But, like, the movie seems to be walking this line. Like, are they just crazy? Or is there a malevolence 
spiritual force that's that's making this happen. So, was it a mistake to show the witch that early? Do you think? No, I, I mean I'll re- reiterate what I said with the last review. Uh, I really like front loading. Right. I really like the fact um, that we, to fool we're us. not worried about that. Maybe this this is just craziness or or something. Nope, there's there's a witch. We know what it is. We don't exactly know what they're capable of, but we know they're capable of something bad. And then all of the pieces are in play. Now let's have a movie, a very human movie, where they exist in a world where there's witches out to get them. Turns out to be the devil, but there are also witches around. And like I, I for me, it would have really ruined it if it was like the witch question mark. Right. I really liked that there was a witch. I really liked... So there's like a secondary theory that's going on with this movie because um, as this family is toiling in in the wilderness, their corn is rotting. And apparently that kind of corn, when it gets a certain blight, can cause hallucinations. So there's some fan theories that this is hallucinations. But even before that, like there's two little kids singing that Black Phillips song there's nowhere for them to have learned that. Their dad wouldn't have told them that prayer to the devil. No. Like, it's it's clearly a movie where there's the devil in it and there's the witches and the devil is the goat. Yeah. I mean, to answer my own question, I think maybe showing the witch made us like the family, made us fear for the family more. <laughs> so that we don't immediately go for that, oh, they're just crazy, this is all just extremism. I think the switch is that we're meant to be sort of questioning and, and sort of suspicious of the of the oldest daughter, and it, it keeps our eyes off of the little kids. Uh, uh, the kids, all of them, are amazing actors. The little boy that uh, is sort of the middle child, who is probably the most likable character in the whole movie. Did you sense any sexual tension between him and his older sister? There was totally that scene where he was checking out her boobs. Like, uh, he noticed that she was developing. Um, But, again, all of that would just... Sin, sin, sin. He was so built on this this faith. As he's laying there, delirious and and dying from this sickness, he's screaming out all of these, uh, you know, I want to be enveloped in the great love and light of the Lord and uh, it becomes this terrifying scene uh, and uh, I don't know how you get a little kid who's you know going to be able to understand that material let alone deliver it to you so effectively respect <laughs> yeah um, all of the performances were terrific the one that it wasn't even a bad one because they were all good uh, the mom who's I can't remember the actor's name who plays the mom but she plays the character on Game of Thrones who is also kind of a crazy mother type uh, and she seemed to be reprising her role a little bit she was she was the one that to me was kind of the least impressive just because she got so bad so quickly um, but that said like that's that's a really small complaint yeah, you gotta look hard to find some negative things to say. I mean, it's not a it's not a jump factory. It's not a spook house type of movie. This is one that sort of works your nerves and gets into you. Uh, the actress's name was Kate Dickey that you're talking about. Yeah, Kate Dickey. Um, I want to talk about uh, the the father. Is it William? Sure. But but before we get there, but just because you said it's not a jump factory, um, I've seen it twice now. I saw it. 
maybe a year ago or so, and then once for uh, this podcast, neither time was I really remotely scared, but it didn't really matter. Like, it, like if I watched The Exorcist, I wouldn't be remotely scared, but it's a terrific drama. Right. Uh, Ralph Innocent, who plays the father, is asked to do a lot of the heavy lifting with the acting here. Like you say, Kate Dickey is kind of woo crazy, but... He's the guy who's trying to cut a life out of this earth and who's like, sees the rotting corn and sees, you know, the weather starting to change. Like, even if there isn't a supernatural element to deal with, their survival is very much a real thing. And it's on his face. That actor, I think, just so brings it. Like, he doesn't have to say anything. You just look at the way he looks at those kids and he's so scared and so worried for them. And that's before the shit starts to hit the fan. (laughs) So, well, yeah. and like there's that nice through line, like when when things get bad for him, which is almost all the time, uh, he goes to the witch or he goes out back and chops wood because like, that's the only thing he can do is chop wood. And then we see right like right before he dies because he dies on the wood pile. Yeah. Um, but the wood pile is just enormous because whenever he feels hopeless, he chops wood. And he's obviously felt hopeless for the entire time that they've been there. The stack is as big as the side of the house. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and again, that, that goat. I didn't know where the movie was going, but when he, he gets hit by the goat... Right, and he's about to... He's got the axe in his hand. He's about to maybe fight the goat and then he just kind of shrugs his shoulder quotes a line from the book of job and it's like yeah you got <laughs> it me. sucks yeah but the i am it's not like it's a survivable wound <laughs> this is the the time and place you know if someone breaks their ankle it's a that's a fatal injury <laughs> right no but what i mean is even before he gets the wound like he's, he's about to he he's in like fight mode and then just the hopelessness of it and his own part in the the downfall of his family occurs to him and he sort of lowers the axe quotes a line from the book of job and just lets himself be gored yeah he's failed he's wanted to protect his family and he's failed and he knows it even before the destruction of the family is complete mm. So, I mean, a lot of people that have got this bloodlust in that are really looking for a horror movie that has teeth and blood and scares and jumps. That's not this type of movie, but it stays with you. Those final images of this girl, her family completely gone, walking, vulnerable and naked into this night woods. Um, I knew as I was watching it the first time, yeah, this is a memorable, important horror movie. (laughs) Like... Uh, this is going to stick around. This is going to leave an impression. I don't yeah. think... And I would say, even though we've spoiled every, almost every single plot point, it doesn't matter. It won't like, diminish it at all. This is rewatchable. It won't diminish it at all, because the story isn't what makes it scary as much as the presentation. It, the, the spell it casts is grim and creepy as fuck. <laughs> and uh, that's an impressive and difficult thing to for like a professional filmmaker to pull off. This is this dude's first movie, <laughs> so... Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to it. It's because it's because he filmed this like a drama, that, which is... Uh, I mean, a, a well-placed jump scare is great, but movies... Like, I even thought about it the second time I watched The Conjuring, because I gushed over it for this podcast some time ago, 
And then I rewatched it, and I knew where all the jump scares were. And without those, it's actually kind of a boring movie. <laughs> but there's not a single jump scare. This is this is a really human story. It's not what it's about, right? It, it, it's it's about getting under your skin, and it's about making you care about this family, and then watching its destruction helplessly. But you don't want to turn away from it. You got to see it through because the movie makes you care and it makes you feel. And when a movie does that, you know, <laughs> that means it's working. That's what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, it, I don't like feeling the manipulation, I guess, with movies. And that's maybe the thing that pisses us off about jump scares, especially false scares. It's just like, it, it seems so hardly programmed. Okay, we need at least three or four of these. We got to time it. Uh, so someone hears a noise and they're going to walk down a hallway and then a cat's going to jump out and go boo. Uh, yeah. No, it's, this is such more, it's more complex, it's more psychological than that. And it's not an easy thing to achieve. And the fact that he achieved it with his first feature film, props. I'm sure it's going to be like Session 9 where, you know, the next thing he does is a high budget <laughs> quote period movie that's just kind of mediocre. I'll watch it. Yeah, I mean, he's got me. I, this is this is a masterful movie. Like, even if he doesn't do anything else uh, great again, well I'd done. say great director. Well done. six movies I, I don't know if we were particularly grumpy or if the, it was a weaker list than we're used to but it it seemed like we spent a lot of the time you know picking on these movies and then we got to the witch and we just gush 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 <laughs> so i have the feeling we're going to agree on the top of the list but tell me uh what's the bottom of your list uh well i think we're gonna agree on that actually just more generally before uh before I get to it, I think we've actually agreed on every single movie. It might we our rankings might be a little bit different, which is fine. But like, sort of, the, the, we had the same basic opinion of every single movie. So uh, I don't know if we're gonna go six for six, but spiritually, we've gone six for six. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. What's the bottom? Uh, who could who could possibly guess what the bottom of my list is? Um, as uh, a great man once said, of American uh, haunting, shame on everybody involved. <laughs> there's, there's not a single good thing about this movie. Uh, don't watch it. It's not even, it's not even fun. Bad. It's just a big fucking waste of your time. It's like the flagship of the lame PG ghost movies. It's just. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, we've had, we've gone back and forth on this before too. I actually think PG is probably the perfect rating for a ghost movie because ghost movies aren't violent, really supposed to be gory or violent or anything. And you could do creepy with PG, but it's just the flagship for a movie that <laughs> sucks. Fail. <laughs> All right. All right. Here's where I think we might 
start to disagree. Uh, next to the bottom, I'm going to put the movie that I didn't like the second last. Uh, it's a movie that I actually I didn't mind watching it, but there, there just wasn't all that much to it, which uh, is Extraordinary Tales. Uh, this is a movie that uh, I would recommend to, like, a high school English teacher who's going through a divorce and doesn't necessarily have the energy to put a lecture together. Like, this is, a, this is like, a good good insight into Edgar Allan Poe, I guess. Like, you know, this is Edgar Allan Poe. Um, it doesn't really take any chances. There's nothing bad about it, but there's nothing all that great about it. Yeah. Um, but number three, I actually liked watching a little bit less, but I think was more inspired and had more memorable moments. So as much as Gothic got on my nerves a whole bunch, it also had some terrific shots and some terrific set pieces. Um, and I think, I mean, I said that I wouldn't recommend it, and I kind of agree that I wouldn't recommend it, but there's some inspiration there there's some energy there uh maybe too much at some point but anyway uh next i would put the falling um i could see another person putting this at the top of their list or another person putting it at the bottom of their list and so i just thought i would split the difference and put it at the middle of my list um i didn't like watching it very much but i recognize that there's something to it uh, next is Stonehurst Asylum. Uh, I was surprised at how much I liked Stonehurst Asylum. I don't necessarily think it's for everybody, but it's it's fun. It's satisfying. You feel good watching it. It's interesting. Was interesting to me. Uh, and then obviously the witch. I yeah. think I think we just had a big circle jerk around the witch, and enough said. <laughs> well. Um... We definitely agreed on the top and the bottom. <laughs> I'm sort of disappointed because I, 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 I was starting to feel like you were going to renew your championship and upset Karen and uh, really upset Beckman because he's clinging on to his title very jealously. <laughs> there might be actual tears <laughs> when the day comes. Sadly, it's not today. You're right in saying that we agree enough. Like... <laughs> I, I don't feel passionately enough about these movies to really, you know, this belongs there, this belongs there. But obviously The Witch is number one, and fucking obviously An American Haunting is is the number six place. I got this at a, a DVD sale. They were three for eight dollars. So what's the math work out to there? Like two dollars and sixty some cents or something? Or my math is terrible. Not worth it. Do not do not watch an American haunting. Oh, I've got a question. Yes. Uh, there was that. Was it the Day of the Dead remake? Oh, was that the one that you and Jeremy burned? Which is worse? Contagium pissed me off because it was attaching its sort of wagon to a, a different franchise and like clearly didn't give a fuck about it. So I mean, I guess it it, it hit me more personally, but it's definitely in that company. so i did put gothic in fifth place because i don't think it's good i I mean i think i think it's memorably bad (laughs) i think that if you're a connoisseur of this so bad it's good if you want to see some good actors giving some really hammy performances and 
there's so much interesting around the movie that like it feels like it should be better than it is but i gotta be honest you know <laughs> it's it's kind of a hot mess <laughs> it, memorably so or not uh gothic i put in fifth place extraordinary tales not because it's particularly awesome just because it sucks significantly less than the other two managed to get to the fourth place uh again it's kind of the interesting stuff around the movie that makes it worth the time the fact that it has all these important people from horror involved in the production and the the fact that it is edgar Allan poe and the fact that there's different types of animation it's interesting enough for people who are interested in it it's not gonna you know check all the boxes for uh, the mainstream audiences but i think you know if this movie's for you or not animated short films based on edgar Allan poe yay or nay right uh so it's fine it's fine you know it's fine i just can't get excited about it but i don't hate it at all i put the falling in third place just like you did i think i liked it more than you did but i mean we both said it's it's good but there's something we can't put our finger on i think that maybe it's intentional that we can't put our finger on it but i still find it vaguely frustrating and i there's there's something paradoxical about a premise that is absolutely fascinating and a movie that's not particularly engaging. Mm. Like, how can it be both of those things at once? And yet that's what it is. So it's interesting, and it makes it to third place. Yep, Stonehurst Asylum's number two. <laughs> uh, love the director, love the cast, love the presentation. Um, it, it's good enough. It's not a masterpiece, but it's 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 a worthy watch. And The Witch is, yeah, I think it's the classic of this bunch of movies. I mean, it's kind of early to call it that. I know it's a pretty brand new film, but it's a very good, very effective, very chilling piece of work. And even though in our typical rank and review swear-heavy fashion, we've spoiled almost the whole movie if you haven't seen it, even knowing the story, I don't think will diminish the scares or the effectiveness at all. It's just a fucking well-made horror movie. And uh, it's unique. And it deserves number one. So, yeah, there it is. Yeah, and I honestly, like we disagreed on Gothic and Extraordinary Tales. They're about the same. They're, right. they're really different. And neither one is great. Um, I, yeah, we didn't go six for six, but we agreed on everything. Yeah. It's not quite, when we did that like, ghost one and I put Exeter in second last place, that, was a, <laughs> yeah. that one really bugged me, like, that it would be Exeter. <laughs> like, oh, once again, we're so close, brother, we're Actually, so close. Actually, I'm starting to think that this is classic Matt and Larry, because I think <laughs> the same thing happened uh, on the list that had the grudge, <laughs> where it was just, just like sort of those middling, obviously not the worst, but could go either way towards the bottom. Uh, so good enough good enough thank you for returning once again to rank and review we'll keep on putting these out while people keep on listening to them um you'll be back right you have well there's some some small chance i'll be in saskatoon for christmas and if that were to happen obviously we would have to do a live show where where we don't have the uh, mics cutting out or one of us going isn't it important when you come to saskatoon that you spend all of that time not 
actually visiting your relatives <laughs> but watching horror movies just the tradition yeah you gotta get your you know if it's a four-day visit you gotta get your 12 hours worth of uh movies that you like two hours worth of in well let's all of us look forward to that <laughs> um thanks for being here once again and um that's another action-packed episode of frank in review is there anything you, do you want to say anything to the kids on the internet No, just keep keep it up. You guys are doing a great job. Thanks for interneting. <laughs> keep what, listening to that show that you're already listening to. And telling people about it, damn it. So sadly, we come to the end of another fantabulous edition of Rank and Review. Thank you for your ears, and thank you for helping to spread the word on this little cast. Tell that movie friend in your life all about the show. Send that feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. Tell me how you would rank the episodes. Tell me what you want to hear from the podcast. Tell me anything that's on your mind. Thank you so much, and hope to hear from me again. I hope to hear from you again, or I hope you continue to listen to Rankin Review.